Hey, everybody. It is Monday, June 12th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, a pressing question to begin this Monday podcast. Last <laughs> we left you on Friday, you were debating what drink to have to get through what was a very eventful news week. How'd it go this weekend? Well, Mosh, like all good journalists, I had to sample all of the options, and I had both. I had a Moscow Mule and a Sangria. It was that kind of week. You drank between the lines, so we didn't have to. <laughs> and Mosh, you're still in the Middle East right now. Yes, uh, for a few more hours. Uh, I will be back in the U.S. on Tuesday. I believe you're doing the pod solo tomorrow. Uh, but I'll be back for what is sure to be an eventful week ahead here, Jill. Why, Mosh? What do you mean? Is anything going on? <laughs> it's our favorite word, Jill. Unprecedented. It's going to be an unprecedented week in American history. All right. With that, let's get to the headlines. Details on the federal indictment of former President Trump, what he said this weekend about self-pardons, plea deals, and how he's going to fight the charges, and what everyone can expect this week. The Miracle Rescue in Columbia have four kids, the oldest 13 years old to the youngest, just 11 months, survived in the rainforest alone for 40 days. We're learning more about the death of Unabomber Ted Kaczynski in federal prison over the weekend. Now word that he committed suicide. The collapse of a key part of the I-95 expressway near Philadelphia this weekend. New projections are out on how many more years before American women can expect to be paid equal to American men. The first ever chat GPT powered AI pastor delivers a sermon this weekend. How that worked in a church. Jill, not surprisingly, it drew some mixed reactions. The whole artificial intelligence pastor will give you the details on where that took place. And Moshe is on this day in history. Jill, a look at J-Lo's first ever hit song and how it almost belonged to Michael Jackson, how that all went down. All right, let's start with what we're learning about Trump's indictment. Former President Trump vowed this weekend to continue running for president, even if he was convicted as part of that 37 count federal felony indictment regarding classified documents. Trump telling Politico in an interview that, quote, I'll never leave, referring to the race. Adding, quote, if I would have left, I would have left prior to the original race in 2016. That was a rough one. So Trump is not legally prohibited from running for president from prison or as a convicted felon. But such a bid would be, Moshe, our favorite word, unprecedented for a major party candidate and present approximately a million questions that we have never faced before, legally and politically. Jill, I think that's a fair number. A million sounds about <laughs> right. So the vow from Trump came as he hit the campaign trail for the first time since the indictment this weekend with appearances in North Carolina and Georgia. Let's take a listen to a bit of what he had to say in Georgia Saturday night. Ridiculous and baseless indictment of me by the Biden administration's weaponized Department of Injustice will go down as among the most horrific abuses of power in the history of our country. Many people have said that. Democrats have even said it. This vicious persecution is a travesty of justice. You're watching Joe Biden. Joe, I think of it. Biden is trying to jail his leading political opponent, an opponent that's beating him by a lot in the polls, just like they do in Stalinist Russia or communist China. We didn't do any obstruction. This is a sick nest of people that needs to be cleaned out immediately. Get them out. Deranged 
Jack Smith. And I watched him yesterday go up and talk. He talked for about two and a half minutes. He was shaking. He was so scared. He didn't want to be there. Because ultimately, these are cowards. They're cowards. And he's a big Trump hater. Openly, he's a Trump hater. And his wife is even more of a Trump hater. Keep in mind, despite what Trump said there, Jack Smith was special counsel independently assigned to the case, who then presented evidence to a grand jury, which voted on the indictment, not the attorney general, not President Biden. Okay, so let's break down exactly what this indictment is all about. So the Justice Department on Friday unsealed the indictment. It alleges that when Trump left the White House after his term ended in January of 2021, he took hundreds of classified documents with him to his Florida estate, Mar-a-Lago. And then this is key. He repeatedly prevented and blocked efforts by the government to get the records back. Trump is accused of violating seven federal laws, but he faces 37 separate charges. And that is because each classified document that he is accused of holding onto illegally is charged in a separate count. So they went with 31 key documents and then his alleged efforts to hide classified information from federal investigators. Well, that's charged in several other ways, including conspiracy, false statement, evidence tampering and concealing evidence. His longtime aide, Walt Nada, faces six charges as part of the cover up. As far as those documents that Trump retained, they related to American nuclear programs, weapons and defense capabilities of the United States and foreign countries, and potential vulnerabilities to an attack, information that, if exposed, officials say could jeopardize the safety of the military and U.S. intelligence officers. So if Trump is convicted on all of these charges, the sentences could run consecutively, amounting to hundreds of years in prison. But federal defendants are rarely given the maximum possible punishment, and he does not face any mandatory minimum sentences. Yeah, of those charges, Jill, uh, the longest maximum sentence is 20 years, and a judge could determine, again, if he's found guilty on multiple charges, to have him serve them concurrently as well. So then there's the hoarding of the documents, the lying about the documents, and then there's the location of the documents, Jill, which are getting a lot of attention, the photos that were released as part of the indictment, including boxes upon boxes in a bathroom, in the shower, in a ballroom that held more than 100 events. Trump also allegedly showed highly sensitive material to visitors who didn't have security clearances. One of these instances is actually caught on audio tape. Uh, and he also obstructed the FBI, the grand jury, and even his own attorneys from getting to these documents. He acknowledges, Jill, in one of those audio conversations, according to the indictment, that he knows that this is classified, that he should have declassified this document while he was president. Uh, and so that is key to going against his argument that he's used publicly, saying, I declassified all of this. I can declassify whatever I want. There's an acknowledgement, at least behind the scenes here, that he knew what he was doing uh, included classified documents. Then there's that personal aide you mentioned, Walt Nada, who's also facing charges. There's correspondence between him and Nada, him getting Walt to move the boxes around, including to get around his lawyer who wanted him to return them to the federal government. And this all came, as Trump has been saying publicly, I've been cooperating the entire time. Well, there's evidence here laid out in this indictment that he, in fact, was not cooperating the entire time. He was trying uh, in a variety of ways, including asking his lawyers if they could lie to the government to keep these classified documents. One key thing a lot of you are probably hearing about is the Espionage Act. Those 31 first counts of taking the documents are being charged under the Espionage Act. Note that a conviction on the Espionage Act does not require any evidence of a desire to disseminate the classified information. 
having it in an unauthorized location is enough. Meaning, Moshe, that prosecutors don't need to prove that Trump was going to do anything bad with the documents. It's just the fact that he has them that's in violation of the Espionage Act. Right, exactly. Now, historically speaking, though, they don't pursue Espionage Act charges merely for holding documents, especially if you claim it was an accident and you return them right away. But if there is evidence in this case, as laid out in this indictment, there's intention to obstruct uh, and hold on to those documents, that's when they bring in the Espionage Act. And that's a key difference between Trump and Clinton, which we'll get into in just a bit here. Generally speaking, Jill, as we've discussed with other crimes, it's not the initial crime, but the cover-up that can get you into trouble here. And that's what most of the indictment gets into here. Repeated efforts by Trump to keep the documents, fight the government, despite, again, publicly saying he was cooperating, asking lawyers if he could lie to the government, how he could hold on to these things, asking aides to move boxes around to avoid his lawyers, which, by the way, implicates one of his lawyers, Evan Corcoran, in the indictment, uh, who kept vociferous notes of his meetings with Trump. That is why we have a lot of the knowledge we do about the efforts, the links Trump went to, uh, to try to obstruct here, including, of course, that audio, uh, him acknowledging that he knew he had classified documents, and the various exchanges, uh, text messages, correspondence, uh, camera, video camera evidence internally of the constant efforts to shift boxes around and avoid subpoenas. Moshe, I've been listening to so much coverage of the indictment. I've been listening to left-wing media outlets, right-wing media outlets, and of course, Mo News, which is right down the middle. Uh, But it has been fascinating on some of these more conservative outlets. For example, I was listening to Megyn Kelly's podcast on Friday, and she and some of her guests were arguing that this is a total political witch hunt, basically what Trump himself is arguing. And they made a big deal about talking about Hillary Clinton's emails, and that if there were no charges having to do with her emails, why are there charges here that it has to be political? So walk us through the differences between Trump and Clinton. So Jill, it's really interesting uh, to see the reactions so far on the right. Uh, For the most part, you haven't seen much of a shift here when it comes to the Trump allies still defending him, the Trump critics within the party still criticizing him. Notably, though, and this got a lot of attention on Sunday, Bill Barr, Trump's former attorney general, was on Fox News being asked about this idea that this is a witch hunt. Take a listen. The idea of presenting Trump as a victim here, a victim of a witch hunt, uh, is ridiculous. Yes, he's been a victim in the past. Yes, his uh, adversaries have obsessively pursued him with phony claims. And I've and I've been at his side defending against them when he is a victim. But this is much different. He's not a victim here. He was totally wrong uh, that he had the right to have those documents. Those documents are among the most sensitive secrets that the country has. He. They have to be in the custody of the archivist. He had no right to maintain them and retain them. And he kept them uh, in a way uh, at Mar-a-Lago that anyone who really cares about national security, their stomach would churn at it. You know, look, I think in this political time where you can spin absolutely anything, depending on how you feel politically, analysis from somebody like Bill Barr, who was a Trump supporter, who was his attorney general, who is extremely knowledgeable, obviously, of the law. I think it's valuable. Jill, it's a fascinating interview. We posted a couple of clips over on the Amonu's Instagram account. Uh, In another clip we posted, he says, if even half of this indictment is true, he's toast. Again, from a longtime Trump ally, someone who got a lot of criticism from the left, 
for being overly defensive of him during the administration, but then, you know, has tried to stake out a position here post-presidency of calling things as they are. Also notable, as you mentioned, that this was on Fox News. So this is likely a Republican conservative audience, many of whom were thinking of voting for Donald Trump. And so it would be interesting to see if this indictment, unlike the Alvin Bragg indictment, does change minds a bit. Yeah, or leads to a larger feeling among some Republicans. And you saw some of the people at the Georgia rally. We played sound of the Trump rally earlier in this pod who did say, you know, I don't know about the specifics here, but it just feels like this is starting to feel like a lot. Um, Now, for the most part, most people who attended that rally and cheered him on are like, we fully support him. This is a witch hunt. But there might be something around the edges there. And it does come during a key Republican primary year. Now to the larger question about Clinton v. Trump here. Now, keep in mind, by the way, many Democrats will throw out there, Donald Trump, you were president for four years. Why didn't you prosecute Hillary Clinton if you thought what she did was so bad? And so that's something Democrats are throwing out here. But let's go to the differences here. Let's recall, let's back up uh, and remind everyone that Clinton relied on a private email system for the sake of convenience during her time as Secretary of State. By the way, this is something that other Secretary of States had done in the past. FBI investigators would ultimately conclude that Clinton sent and received emails containing classified information on that unclassified personal system. The Clinton team would turn over 30,000 emails. 110 of those emails were found to have classified information. By the way, all but three were determined to be classified after the fact, as in they didn't know while they were being sent that they were classified. After the fact, they're like, oh, that stuff should have been classified. But there were a handful that were classified at the time. You might remember then the FBI investigated Hillary Clinton, uh, James Comey coming out in 2016 to say that he found Clinton to be extremely careless, but there was no evidence that Clinton or her aides intended to break any laws governing classified information, that this was more happenstance. These were in long email chains and there was no willfulness or obstruction. And that's the standard that they uh, threw out there and the standard that's clearly used in this Trump indictment. All efforts, as we mentioned, to pursue the Espionage Act included efforts to obstruct justice, willful mishandling of documents, exposure of vast quantities of records. So Clinton, personal emails, uh, no intentionality as far as the classified documents were concerned uh, or attempts at obstruction. That's in direct contrast here to Trump who prosecutors say was involved in packing those boxes, sending it to Mar-a-Lago, actively took steps to conceal the classified documents from investigators. As we said, it's about the cover-up here, the intent for two years, multiple threads, audio to uh, engage in conspiracy and lies to hold on to what he knew were classified documents. And also because of the questions surrounding Hillary Clinton and her emails, Trump, while he was on the campaign trail, made a really big point of saying that under his administration, that he would be enforcing all laws regarding classified information, even as going as far to say no one will be above the law. Multiple quotes are going to be part of the trial here, Jill. Multiple quotes by Trump in 2016 talking about Hillary and how he would never do such a thing are going to be used as part of the uh, prosecution here. Notably, by the way, Trump actually increased the penalties regarding classified documents in relation to the Clinton stuff. So he signed laws while he was president that make the penalties worse. Laws and penalties that he could potentially be faced now himself because he changed the law himself to make the punishment worse. And really quickly, Moshe, I do also just want to talk about Biden and Pence because they both had classified documents at their residences 
And for people who are supportive of Trump, a lot of them say, look, Biden had documents, Pence had documents. Why aren't they being charged? Let's take these one by one. Mike Pence, it appears he had a handful of documents found his Indiana home. It was a oh crap moment. He immediately brought in the FBI. The, uh, they investigated this very briefly, found no allegations of willful retention or obstruction. Again, those are the key words you're going to hear more and more. Willful retention or obstruction. So Pence is clear. Now, as far as Biden is concerned, recall that a special counsel has been put in charge of also investigating Joe Biden. Back in January, they disclosed that a small number, quote, small number of classified documents, we believe it to be about two dozen documents from his time as vice president, were found at his office space in D.C., as well as his home in Delaware. You might hear the mention that they were kept in his garage next to his Corvette. That's something that Biden said. He's like, oh, yeah, they're in my garage next to my Corvette. Now, notably, in the Biden case, they immediately invited the FBI in for multiple searches, said, take whatever, go through all the boxes. Uh no attempt at this juncture to obstruct justice. Now, what those documents were, those two dozen documents, still TBD, that special counsel still conducting that investigation. So I imagine we'll hear more from that soon. But again, the key difference, whether it's the comparison, the what about, people like to call call it whataboutism. What about Clinton? What about Biden? What about Pence? The basic difference here is obstruction of justice, intentionality, knowledge that they were classified as opposed to accidental. And that's a larger thing here. We clearly have a a problem here in terms of classified documents getting out from people at a certain level. The difference here is so far, again, we don't have the Biden stuff in yet. Trump is unique in the fact that he knew what he had. It's nuclear documents. It's war plans against Iran. It's vulnerabilities of our allies to war. Uh, And it was, you know, an intention by him, no matter what the government said, no matter subpoena, to hold on to those documents. All right. So Trump is set to be arraigned in Florida tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern time. But still a lot of questions about the timing and when this trial is going to potentially take place. So first, they're going to talk about a timeline for further action in the case. And that includes beginning discussions about a protective order to govern the sharing of evidence among the parties. That process is known as discovery. And it's particularly fraught in a case involving an extraordinary amount of highly classified intelligence. It could be the most time-consuming part of the trial. Trump, again, is facing 31 charges for willfully retaining classified records, and the Trump team will be pushing for details on each of those documents. The special counsel, Jack Smith, indicated on Thursday that he intends to seek a speedy trial in accordance with that constitutional guarantee. But what that means in the real world is quite unclear. Yeah, Jill, you mentioned that discovery process. That could take a while here because they got to go through each of the 31 documents. What information from those classified documents can be made available to each team here? Uh, Keep in mind, Trump also has that other trial, that other indictment in New York. And that trial is set to start next March. Those are the charges related to the hush money payment, related to Stormy Daniels. And legal watchers would say it would be unusually ambitious if Jack Smith tries to bring his case ahead of the Manhattan trial. Now, keep in mind, the Manhattan trial is state. This is federal. uh, But again, here we sit here in June of 2023. Uh, There's a primary election. There's a general election. So how this is navigated before November 2024 will be interesting. That's when Trump will be looking to push this till after November 2024, when he believes he will be president again or be elected president again. He will then control the Justice Department, have an attorney general, when he believes he could put the kibosh on this case. And for those asking, how would that work? 
I have no idea. We have never seen a sitting president who had previously been federally indicted before become president again mid-trial. Notably, one other thing we're watching, Jill, the judge, Aileen Cannon. She's a federal judge appointed by Trump in 2020. She's been assigned the arraignment so far, and so far will be the judge in the case down there in uh, the Florida district. She has ruled favorably uh, for Trump in uh, this case, in recent cases related to the classified records. Actually, a couple of her rulings, Jill, were overturned by higher court judges, actually other conservative judges who happen to also be appointed by Trump uh, and other Republican presidents. And she does not have experience with this type of case. These cases are typically held in Washington. The prosecution here decided to put locate this case in Florida to prevent another delay tactic by the uh, Trump team to move the case to Florida. Uh, And so there's going to be questions related to this judge here that we'll be watching as well. Jill, we mentioned at the top that Trump was also asked about a self-pardon and plea deals over the weekend. Real briefly, he wouldn't comment on whether he would pardon himself, saying he doesn't believe he'll need to. But that's another question that will come up here. Again, no person's ever tried to pardon themselves, so we don't know how that would work. And then separately, as far as plea deals is concerned, notably, he said, I don't plan to have any sort of plea arrangement or plead guilty. In fact, the only plea deal I would take, Jill, is if they pay me money for the time they've wasted in my life over these indictments. You could say that that's pretty unlikely, Jill. All right, we have plenty more to get to, including today's speed read. But first, we want to tell you about a couple exclusive offers for Mo News listeners and thank a couple of our sponsors here. We're going to start with Bull and & Branch, and we're so happy to be partnering again with them this week. Bull & Branch is a brand that helps you get an amazing night's sleep. They have a great sale right now for Mo News listeners, which I'll tell you about in just a second. My wife, Alex, and I got Bull & Branch sheets nearly a year ago, and they're all we use now. We actually have a couple sets. The great part is they get softer with every wash. Jill, I I actually take a Bull and Branch pillowcase on vacation with me. Okay, that <laughs> that's loyalty, Moch. Right, they didn't ask me to do that on par- as part of this partnership, but I do that anyway. Their sheets are made with 100% traceable organic cotton. They're also made without toxins, free of things like synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. Bull and Branch has already been bought by millions of Americans. Another interesting fact I learned recently, that includes four American presidents. But let's get to the deal here. You can get 15% off right now your first order when you use the promo code MONE news over at bullandbranch.com that's bull and branch b-o-l-l-a-n-d branch.com 15 percent off with the promo code monews now to athletic greens we're always talking about health trends and food trends here on the podcast and it can be hard to get all of your nutrients one way to try to get the important ones is athletic greens ag1 powder it's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning It's easy and it's quick and it lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. And it also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving MoNews listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You could get a discounted monthly subscription, or you can try it one time for just a month. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal. All right, time now for the speed read. Let's start with that miracle in the rainforest in Colombia. This latest from the BBC. One day after their rescue, the four Colombian children who survived alone in the jungle for 40 days after their plane crashed are eager to play and asked for books to read, according to officials. These siblings, ages 13, 9, 
four and the youngest, just 12 months old, were recuperating at a military hospital and said to be in good health and spirits on Saturday. The children's mother and two pilots were killed when their small aircraft crashed into the jungle on May 1st. The missing children are members of a small indigenous community, and they became the focus of a huge rescue operation involving dozens of soldiers and local police. The survival story is all the more miraculous as the jungle is home to jaguars, pumas, snakes, and other predators, as well as armed groups that smuggle drugs and terrorize local populations. For weeks, the search turned up only tantalizing clues, things like footprints, a dirty diaper, and a bottle. Family members said the oldest child had some experience in the forest, but hopes had really waned as the weeks went on. The Colombian president has said that their learning from indigenous families and their learning of living in the jungle had really saved them. Their grandmother explained the eldest of the four siblings, that 13-year-old girl, was used to looking after the other three when their mother was at work, and this is what helped her keep them alive in the jungle. Mosh, I have an 11-month-old son and a four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and and I can't even imagine. I mean, this is just the this story is just beyond miraculous. It's amazing, Jill. The search effort, by the way, down in Columbia was called Operation Hope. Uh, they actually had to cover more than 1,600 miles while looking for this group of siblings over 40 days. And they kept seeing some clues, and so they kept going. We are learning more here about how they survived. Apparently, there was a uh, six-pound bag of cassava flour uh, that helped save the lives of the four children initially, though they ran out after a few days. And so then they had to make their way through the jungle trying to figure out how to stay alive. And so officials say that their indigenous origins being part of this tribe allowed them to acquire immunity against certain diseases in the jungle and to know the jungle itself. This 13-year-old knew what to eat and what not to eat, as well as how to find water to keep them alive. Government officials in Colombia saying if these were, you know, city kids, that they would have had a much more difficult time trying to survive for 40 days in the jungle. Right now, officials there believe they could discharge these children within two to three weeks. We should note, by the way, that two of the children's birthdays passed during their time in the jungle. So that's why you might be seeing different numbers out there. The It started with a four-year-old who's now five, and then that 11-month-old turned one, uh, all while they were trying to make their way through the jungle, uh, Colombian government saying that the entire nation needs to be celebrating these two kids' birthdays um, who, who made it through all of this. But Jill, I can't get enough of this story and the details, and I imagine there are a number of streaming services already working on documentaries and movies about this story. From the New York Times, we're getting more details on the death of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, in prison over the weekend. Sources telling multiple media outlets that Kaczynski, who was 81 years old, died by suicide at a federal prison medical center in North Carolina early Saturday. Emergency workers were called to his cell just after midnight. Attempts to revive him in the prison and in an ambulance were unsuccessful, and he was later pronounced dead at a nearby hospital. Some background here. Kaczynski killed three people and injured 23 in a male bomb spree stretching from 1978 to 1995. He became known as the Unabomber in media reports. He was a Harvard-educated mathematician whose goal was to bring about the collapse of modern social order through targeted assassinations. He was arrested in 1996 at the tiny cabin in western Montana where he lived without water or electricity 
and built many of the homemade package bombs that he had mailed to targets. Kaczynski was captured 27 years ago after his brother contacted authorities. He would plead guilty and receive multiple life sentences. Kaczynski had health problems in recent years. He was moved to the prison medical facility in North Carolina about 18 months ago after serving more than 25 years at the Supermax Federal Prison in Colorado. Jill, during COVID, uh, my wife, Alex, and I actually got into a couple of the Unabomber documentaries. There's actually several of them, including a couple on Netflix. Uh, There's one that's a drama called Manhunt Unabomber, if you're interested, as well as Unabomber in His Own Words, which is a documentary uh, based on his diary that was released. But back to the suicide here, the circumstances of the suicide are still unclear. We're awaiting more details. Also, whether prison officials could have done more to ensure his safety. But this self-inflicted death of another very high-profile inmate, I mean, very few people more well-known than the Unabomber, comes just four years after the Jeffrey Epstein suicide when he allegedly hung himself in a Manhattan federal detention center. And it's raising questions here about the quality of security oversight, and healthcare in the federal prison system, which is chronically understaffed. And of course, the death of Kaczynski, who is a conspiracy theorist himself who wrote a long manifesto, is raising questions, especially given all the theories, of course, related to Epstein's suicide. Some background here for everybody. Right now, the rate of suicide in federal facilities is between 300 and 400 a year. That is below local and state prisons, but there are issues in this Federal Bureau of Prisons. They did see a major spike in suicides during the pandemic uh, that has begun to ease. And so you got the suicide issue and questions as to, again, how did Ted Zinsky get to a situation where he was able to kill himself after several decades in prison? Uh, and of course, Jill, uh, I remember covering just a couple of years ago, the Whitey Bulger bludgeoning death in a uh, federal prison in West Virginia. He was the notorious Boston gangster. And somehow, despite, you know, again, being a very high profile inmate, someone was able to get to him and kill him. So we are still awaiting a lot more answers here on how this went down. All right. This from NBC News, an elevated section of Interstate 95 collapsed early Sunday in Philadelphia after a vehicle caught fire closing the main north-south highway on the East Coast. It threatens to really make travel more difficult in the Northeast Corridor. Transportation officials warned of extensive delays and street closures and urged drivers to avoid the area in the northeast corner of the city. Early reports indicate that the vehicle may have been a tanker truck, but officials could not immediately confirm that. It led to a massive concrete slab falling from I-95 onto the road below. Thankfully, there were no reports of injuries. Jill, the photos and video here are uh, pretty remarkable. The northbound lanes of I-95 there in Philly, gone. The southbound lanes compromised due to heat from the fire, again, that uh, explosion, essentially, of a vehicle under the bridge leading to that collapse. They believe that runoff from the fire and perhaps broken gas lines were causing explosions underground. Most drivers, those of you on the East Coast, very familiar with I-95. It runs pretty much the length of the East Coast. Most drivers, though, who travel between Delaware and New York City use the New Jersey Turnpike rather than that section of I-95 where the collapse occurred. Still, there's going to be diversion of traffic here. And uh, it will not make things easy uh, in the coming weeks and potentially months. Notably, I got notes, Jill, from people in Atlanta who remembered that a collapse of Interstate 85, which also collapsed in a fire back in 2017. Uh, This is an interstate that runs through the heart of the city down there in Atlanta. Notably, in Atlanta, it took them just six weeks to rebuild that section of the elevated interstate. Unclear right now what the timing is going to be in Philadelphia. 
From Insider.com, Saturday marked the 60th anniversary of the Equal Pay Act. For the anniversary of the passage of the law, the Center for American Progress, a liberal research organization, measured the law's impact by tracking trends in wages over the last six decades. So here are a few numbers. In 1963, full-time, year-round working women earned 59 cents to a man's dollar. In 2021, full-time, year-round working women earned 84 cents to a man's dollar. The pay disparity is even more acute for Black and Latina women. Cumulatively, since 1967, women have missed out on $61 trillion in pay because of the difference. And a woman working full-time, year-round, earned just about $10,000 less than her male counterpart in 2021. Of course, this is a large average that takes into account all full-time, year-round working women. Uh, Based on this trend, Jill, the projection from the Center for American Progress is it's going to take just over 30 more years until the year 2056 for women to officially close the gap. 2056, Mosh. So I will be... I don't know. Will I still be working? I don't know. I think think you'll be retiring around then, Jill. But your daughter and my future daughter... Hopefully, frankly, it happens quicker. Again, this is just a projection here. Um, As you noted, uh, women, uh, as of 2021, earn $0.84 for every dollar a man makes. When you include part-time working women, that averages at $0.77 per dollar. Uh, The full-time working Latina woman makes $0.57 on the man's dollar. Uh, Full-time black female worker makes $0.67 for every white male counterpart. And so they go into a variety of reasons here as to why the wage gap continues to exist. Uh, Women continue to be overrepresented in lower paying occupations like teaching, underrepresented in the highest best paying echelons of companies, though they do say that that is gradually and continually changing here. Uh, Women, by the way, also likely to take time out of the labor force, right, to have children. So when they return, if they return, that impacts their wage increases over that time. There is hope, though, that also anti-discrimination laws, salary transparency laws, which we see in places like New York City, where companies have to show how much a job will be paid, uh, are helping to alleviate this pay gap. Okay, and from the Associated Press now, one of the more unique religious services held this weekend, hundreds attended a Protestant church service in Germany on Friday, generated almost entirely by artificial intelligence with a sermon presented by the AI chatbot Chat GPT. The chatbot presented as a black man with a beard above the altar of St. Paul's Church in Bavaria told the PAC congregation not to fear death. The AI avatar said, quote, dear friends, it is an honor for me to stand here and preach to you as the first artificial intelligence at this year's Convention of Protestants in Germany. The service, which was attended by more than 300 people, lasted 40 minutes and featured prayers and music in addition to the sermon. So if you're wondering who was the brainchild of this AI sermon, <laughs> like who, who <laughs> thought this was a good idea? It is a uh, University of Vienna theologian and philosopher named Jonas Simmerlin. He was the one who decided to use ChatGPT to craft the event. Yeah, so apparently he went to ChatGPT and requested that the chatbot implement psalms, prayers, and a concluding blessing in the sermon. He said he told the AI chatbot, quote, we are at the church congress. You are the preacher. What would a church service look like? And apparently also came out with the the chatbot was like, I'm going to be a black man with a beard. Uh, Literally, they looked, if you look at pictures of this, you see videos of this, 
it's a computer that looks like a person, like a, a fake person that's been created that gives this sermon. So the sermon <laughs> focuses on leaving the past behind, I guess as an AI chatbot would want you to do. You should definitely leave the chat behind and look to the future. But the whole getting the message that you shouldn't be afraid of death from an AI chatbot, Jill, I just feel doesn't land well with me. What is, why is this computer telling me not to fear death? Because it's going to kill all of us pretty soon. Well, it didn't admit that in the sermon, okay? <laughs> but what we do know is that apparently several AI avatars took turns in leading the surface. Simmerlin, as he would say, is quoted by the AP saying that the chat GPT ended up providing, quote, a pretty solid church service. So that's his reaction. But of course, this was his idea. Uh, there is mixed reaction among attendees as well as some complaints. Uh, one man named Heide Rose Schmidt told the AP there was, quote, no heart and no soul. The avatars showed no emotions at all, had no body language, and were talking so fast and monotonously that it was very hard for me to concentrate on what they said. So, I I, I mean, I think literally and figuratively no heart and soul here from uh, AI chatbot's first attempt to give a service, telling you again not to fear death over there in the church in Bavaria. Right, so pastors, imams, rabbis, looks like your jobs are safe for now. <laughs> for now. <laughs> By the way, Jill, I'm shocked that several hundred people sat there for 40 plus minutes <laughs> listening to a robot deliver a sermon. I mean, I guess there's something uniquely German about that. I feel like in an American church, that probably wouldn't go over as well. People would be watching. Well, because they're rule followers. The so they're probably like, yeah, I came, I mean, I'm going to sit here and yeah. I'm going to listen to this. <laughs> Walk out of church. Right. I'm not sure that would work for all face, all sex or all, um, you know, all various nationalities. Americans would be like, uh, OK, after 30 seconds, we're out. Like what? What A robot did this? <laughs> get me out of here. Let's go get the brunch early. All right. On this day in history, Jill, we're going to stay with Germany here for a second. On this day in 1987, 36 years ago today, standing at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, President Ronald Reagan made this famous demand. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Those are, of course, his famous words. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, delivered just two years before that wall would fall down in November of 1989. It would come down. By the time he states this, though, in 87, the Soviet Union already effectively starting to collapse. Eastern European countries finally starting to gain some independence from decades of Russian occupation. Notably, Jill, Putin sees the uh, coming down of the Berlin Wall and the loss of Russian influence, power, and occupation over Eastern Europe as their biggest failure in modern history and has been, as we've seen in Ukraine and through his other um, attempts, trying to uh, exert control over uh, that part of the world. Also, some major Supreme Court history on this day, 56 years ago, Jill, June 12th, 1967, the Supreme Court issues its landmark Loving v. Virginia decision that ruled that all state laws that banned interracial marriage were unconstitutional. All right, wishing a happy 51st birthday to a fast food restaurant that uh, many folks love out there. On June 12th, 1972, the first Popeye's Chicken opened in a New Orleans suburb. It was actually originally named Chicken on the Run and then took on the name Popeye's Chicken. Good name change, Popeye's. <laughs> well done. Chicken on the Run. <laughs> Band on the Run. All right. And we'll end here with some music history, Jill, as we tease at the top. 24 years ago today, June 12th, 1999, this song hit number one on the Billboard charts. That, of course, is J-Lo's first ever single, Jill, If You Had My Love. 
it would actually kick i went back to the charts here in 1999 because i'm sort of obsessed with music in that era that song would kick live in la vida loca out of number one that summer of 99 if you had my love would actually last at number one for five weeks tying genie in a bottle for longest at number one during that summer but most to the much promised michael jackson tie-in what's that about so it's interesting here, Jill, digging into this song. One of the song's co-writers named Corey Rooney said that Lopez was about to finish her album. And that's when Rooney had written a bunch of songs. And Rooney and another uh, co-writer played a CD playlist of songs for then Michael Jackson, which included If You Had My Love. So Corey Rooney writes this song. JLo is working on her album. And Rooney first presents this to Michael Jackson. Now, Rooney believed that the song was perfect for JLo and hope that Jackson would not take it. And so he recalls the moment where he's playing If You Had My Love for Michael Jackson. Michael starts moving and shaking to it, and he goes, man, I really like this one. Rooney was like, my heart sunk. Then Jackson says, I don't actually like it for me, but I like it. I think it's going to be a hit for someone else. I think it would be better for a woman, which then allowed Rooney to present it to a very young J-Lo for her first Elver album, and of course it would go on to number one for J-Lo. Look, whatever you think of Michael Jackson, he knew music. Jill, it's fascinating learning more about music history and just like the songs you take for granted being of one artist or one song for that artist and then actually hearing the backstory of it all. So I thought that was an interesting little uh, piece of trivia for all of you on this Monday morning. Well done, Mosh. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, we want to thank everybody for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And appreciate all of you who joined Mo News Premium over the weekend. We've been trying to keep the coverage going on the indictment and all other major news. A reminder that joining Mo News Premium allows you access to a separate Instagram feed where we answer your questions, as well as a members-only podcast where we release early episodes and exclusive episodes. You can do that right now over at mo.news slash premium. All right, bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.